The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome. You've got Karen Cho in snowy Barcelona and Jeff and I in balmy London. And these are your headlines. So the UK and the EU seal a deal, hailing a new chapter as Prime Minister Rishi Sunak seeks political support for the new Northern Ireland Trade Pact. Today's agreement delivers smooth flowing trade within the whole United Kingdom, protects Northern Ireland's place in our union and safeguards sovereignty for the people of Northern Ireland. We can now open a new chapter in our partnership, a stronger EU-UK relationship. Uh, US uh, equity markets rebound after last week's struggles, though still on pace to close the month in the red. This as Europe's stock 600 surges ahead, more than doubling the S&P 500's return so far this year. ADECO fourth quarter revenue rising, but net profit falls 65%. We'll discuss the results with the staffing group CFO Corum Williams coming up this hour. And Huawei's spin-off Honor dives into the foldable smartphone market. This evening as tech tensions between the United States and China simmer. EY Global Chair and CEO Carmine DeCibo tells me these tensions are set to continue. China will be more and more isolated uh, versus the Western world, and I'm not sure that's a good thing for anyone, but we see it. All our clients are moving, moving their supply chains out of China. Watcher. Very good morning. Good morning. Entente cordiale. Yes. Noch einmal. I.E. That's yes. quite a little bit of uh, French and German there. Yeah, see. very good. Yeah, I see what I can do there. But, but, yeah. but, but how many times have you and I, over the last seven years, said there's a chance of an EU-UK deal? Mm. Or, or there's been a UK-EU deal? Or guess what? It's mm. all over Brexit. Mm. And this is just the latest incarnation. But maybe, mm. maybe some of those tensions have just disappeared. Well, I don't know. But what we do know is that there is a, a, a an outbreak of uh, entente cordiale, as, as you said. Yeah. Um, dear Rishi was the term of endearment that was used by Ursula von der Leyen as she spoke to the media well, there. So well, there, there is clearly an improvement in the tone of this relationship. Can I tell you a secret? I, You're going to tell everybody out there as well? No, no, I'll just tell you. Okay. I met one of the most senior politicians in Europe last summer. And he said, to, late, late last summer, when just after Trust had got the leadership of the, um, of the Conservative Party, yeah? So he became Prime Minister. And so Sunak had failed you know, originally to become prime minister. And this top, top level European politician said to me, how come my friend Rishi didn't win the contest? And we mm. talked off camera discreetly, and I won't reveal any more of the conversation, but I thought that was illuminating mm. that that top European politician said to me, how come my friend Rishi didn't win? Mm. Isn't that interesting about how yes. the Europeans at a certain level see Rishi Sunak compared with other members of the top of the Conservative Party? So, so I'll trade you a story. When well, I was at the IMF, um, uh, okay, we can do that. Uh, so when I was at the IMF back in, what was it, the autumn yeah. of last year, where actually the prospect of some kind of improvement was a mere twinkle in the eye. Yeah. 
A senior Irish politician pulled me aside and said there's some very interesting noises being made around progress that can be achieved yeah. on this arrangement. So we're talking now months and months ago, probably, probably uh, five months ago, well, and yet there was already uh, the planting of seeds going yeah, on at that stage, which was very interesting. Well, look, we better keep those to ourselves and okay. not tell anyone else about those. All right, absolutely. All right. Uh, so anyway, let's get back to this deal. The UK and EU have reached a deal to change post-Brexit trade arrangements in Northern Ireland. The so-called Windsor Framework uh, will remove customs checks for goods moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland and will, uh, will not be viewed as at risk of moving into the EU. The UK will now be able to set VAT and other taxes such as alcohol duty in the region. The deal also includes a way for the devolved Stormont Assembly to stop new EU laws from coming into effect in the region if their decision is backed by the UK government, the so-called break. It is not yet clear whether the changes will satisfy unionist parties in Northern Ireland and encourage them to return to power sharing. The DUP says it is considering the proposals while warning of continued concerns. Well, the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said the deal would resolve issues caused by the original agreement. We have now made a decisive breakthrough. Together, we have changed the original protocol and are today announcing the new Windsor framework. Today's agreement delivers smooth-flowing trade within the whole United Kingdom, protects Northern Ireland's place in our union, and safeguards sovereignty for the people of Northern Ireland. I am standing here today because I believe we have found ways to end the uncertainty and challenge for the people of Northern Ireland. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen also hailed the deal. The new Windsor framework respects and protects our respective markets and our respective legitimate interests. And most importantly, it protects the very hard-earned peace gains of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement for the people of Northern Ireland and across the island of Ireland. And this is why I believe we can now open a new chapter in our partnership. A stronger EU-UK relationship, standing as close partners, shoulder to shoulder, now and in the future. Well, very interesting uh, as we check in on Sterling here to see that, quite frankly, the, uh, the pound isn't getting a huge amount of support from the announcement at this stage. And we will continue to track this, I think, through the morning. And the, the two, 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 two issues kind of throw, throw themselves forward here. One is, have the markets basically decided that geopolitical issues at the moment are too complicated to factor into any price movements? Or is the market actually demonstrating a, an appropriate level of cynicism about the likelihood that this deal is going to move forward. But no, no. 
It's about the dollar, baby, as um, right. a famous economist once told you and I on this show a few times. Yes. You got it wrong. A South African. South African. You got it wrong for a couple of years. But he would, Late would, of would, HSBC. Yeah, but he would have been right, right now. But yes. it's about the dollar, baby, as he would say. Yeah, well, let's get to Sylvia, because I think the dollar story is very interesting in this context, um, not least the American angle. Because, um, Sylvia, as, as we analyze the progress that has been made here, and thanks for joining us this morning from wherever you are, which is cold outside. Westminster, can't, can't <laughs> see the building. Can't see the building. Wherever you are. Well, she could be in College Green. She could be uh, somewhere else uh, with the shot. So uh, anyway, we'll see. Maybe, maybe the, the shot will expand. But anyway, Sylvia, the point that I was going to make is there are two very interesting issues here. One is whether the DUP are going to accept this and we're going to see real progress here at Stormont. And the other is, will ultimately Britain get a trade deal with the United States now on the anniversary of the, uh, the whole uh, Northern Irish agreement, ultimately, which is coming up in April? I mean, there are several uncertainties at this stage, and you outlined a couple of them, Jeff. But let's not forget as well, it's also important to note that this is a significant political win for the Prime Minister for the time being. And if you look at the domestic politics, this is an important development for Northern Ireland, but also for the UK as a whole. But I want to take a closer look to the economic side of it. And this is why I'm joined now by Simon French. He is Chief Economist at Penmore Gordon. Thank you so much for joining me today, Simon. Let's look at this latest announcement from the UK and the EU and what this means for the United Kingdom economy. The IMF projections were not looking very good for the UK. Does this actually bring any sort of boost to the British economy? It does, but it's not a direct boost to Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland's about 2% of the UK economy. It's grown broadly in line since 2016 with the wider UK economy. So it isn't the first order impact on trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. It is, as you are hinting at, the broader confidence impact that this will have, that negotiations go, can go on between the EU Commission and the UK government in a grown-up fashion. What I wrote about yesterday is we've left this moaning teenager stage, which we've had behind us in Westminster for six and a half years. I was stood on this spot six and a half years ago after the Brexit referendum. And at that point, sterling was the sterling index was 17% higher. The valuation of UK equities was about 15% higher. Those devaluations have taken place as confidence has ebbed from the UK economy. What yesterday's Windsor agreement, if it passes due process within Parliament and enters UK law, signifies is that that repeated game, which is, which is Brexit, can be done in a more mature fashion than we've got used to over the last six and a half years. I mean, the market seemed to have liked it yesterday. We didn't see huge movements, but they were quite positive. Do you think that there's some sort of further upside to go or this is it when it comes to UK-EU relationships for the markets? No, I think there is further upside to go, but markets need to be convinced that the data starts to turn. And there are probably two or three data points to look out for. The most important one, I think, is business investment. We think there's a gap of about 15 to 20, uh, 20 billion pounds per quarter in UK business investment versus where it should have been had the UK economy continued to grow since 2016 in terms of business confidence. If that starts to close up, then what you said at your outset, these 
downgraded forecasts from the IMF, from independent forecasters, start to improve as you see a pathway to more capital deepening, more crowding in of international investors who've taken a pretty um, negative view on the UK economy. And then you need to start to see sentiment, uh, business confidence, consumer confidence start to pick up. And if that starts to happen, then will we start to see, if you like, some of the uh, capital that we sat on the sidelines, uh, from, not just from businesses, but also from households who are cautious of what a post-Brexit, uh, post-Covid economy also looks like, will they have the confidence to start to spend that? I think those are the leading indicators to allow what was a, a warm reaction, but not a runaway reaction yesterday, start to get more added momentum. And now in the coming weeks, though, we're going to hear from the Chancellor. Are you expecting any sort of, do you see any sort of correlation from the Windsor Agreement to what the Chancellor might announce in a couple of days? Uh, not a big one. So we have the uh, budget on the 15th of March, and that is the opportunity for the Chancellor, the Finance Minister here in the UK, who's got a, a pretty big in-tray as it is, to set his stall out in terms of tax and spending policies. The direct read across from the Windsor Agreement, fairly limited. I'd say he's got his hands full with dealing with the energy crisis, which is still ongoing, a potential pass-through of about 20% through to households on the 1st of April. I think he's likely to reverse that. That is, will be a bit of a break in terms of for households and their spending power. In terms of the Windsor Agreement, if you like, uh, reinforcing his courage and his enthusiasm to go further, I think it's doubtful. He's quite a cautious character. I think that's a good thing. Um, but he's not going to take what is a political breakthrough and conclude that it's definitely going to generate economic upside to change the fiscal picture in the UK. Now, it's still early to say, essentially, how much of a boost this agreement will actually have also on the polls. At the moment, though, it does seem that Labour will win the next general election. Yes. What does that mean to you at this stage in terms of the future of the British economy? Well, this is a question that investors have been asking with great frequency over the last couple of quarters. I've written quite a lot of uh, notes for clients on this because this feels very much for uh, older viewers with longer memories, a, a 1979 moment when uh, Labour gave way to the Conservatives and then in 1997 again uh, that, that transition happened. There was great uh, market volatility going into both of those two events. I would say though this time around there has been a bit of a de-risking of UK macro and a potential change in government by what happened behind us here in Westminster back in September, October last year. Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, former Prime Minister and Finance Minister here in the UK, they experimented with a very, very different macro model and financial markets said no. So if we think, and if investors have been worrying that uh, an incoming Labour government would tear up the economic rulebook for the UK and try a very different macro uh, model, perhaps from the left of the political thinking rather than the right of the political thinking, I think they've learned a valuable lesson, a salutary lesson, that they're running the UK economy, not the US economy, and the market has to adhere, has to provide the assurance, given the dual deficits the UK economy runs, that it can stomach that. I think that de-risks a, a Labour transition if we get that at the end of 2024. Still a delicate balance for the UK economy in the coming years. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Simon. Simon French, Chief Economist at Penmore Gordon. On that note, though, I'll hand it back to you in the studio, but we'll be discussing in more detail what this Windsor Agreement actually means in the next hours of programming. Very nice work, and uh, thank you very much, dear. No, it's a bit nippy down at Westminster today. Well, so. uh, uh, thankfully, we finally got a shot of Big Ben, because, as I say, you know, 
you couldn't have told you couldn't have told where that is. it looked like it's somewhere dark in the UK right. at um, uh, what quarter past six in the morning. Yeah. It said Westminster it? at the top, though. I know it said Westminster <laughs> at the top, but um, where in Westminster? It's it's a reasonable sized borough. It know? is, yeah, and they've got some blimmin' good council tax Absolutely. as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to go to the markets. You want oh, to say it something? Be, it must be the it must be the month end. Must be coming up for EOM, that time. End of month, yeah. When um, we calculate. So I will say this. Go on. I am I am confused, but I think the market is confused as well. Yes. The durable goods orders overnight knockout, knockout. Right. The spending. The um, um, well, the new what orders. You're at. Uh, so the core capital goods orders increased zero point eight percent in January. Core yeah. capital goods shipments surged one point one percent. Durable goods orders down four point five percent, but that was largely about aircraft orders. It was all about pending oh, home sales yeah. increased eight point one percent, but. The new orders, it seems to me, showing that business spending yeah. is robust. <clears throat> and yet, and yet, depending on who you're talking to, we are plunging into a recession. Yep. The inversion of the yield curve uh, only accelerated yesterday, I think, with the two-year yield higher. So again, you know, you just keep getting these contradictory yes. signals about what you should do with your money running into the rest of this year here. And I'm not sure how much the month-end numbers are helping guide at this point, I, I think while the macro are. data is contradictory. All of the above. So um, I agree mm. with you, and I, I did a bit of a dive into the durable goods as well. I didn't know you yeah. were going to as well. I'll, I'll walk and talk. Okay, I? I'll do okay. that. Because I know Adam go. wants to be out go. there. Because Coram's waiting in the wings as well, and he's got okay. something to say about the economy. So look, so um, uh, absolutely, if you looked at the headline, durable goods, you wouldn't recognise what Jeff saw. But you, he was absolutely right to strip it down to core, absolutely right to strip it down to new orders, because transportation was so volatile, it's ridiculous, always is. Uh, Non-military or non-defence spending transportation is basically between you and I. It's just about Boeing and Boeing orders in the last month were way lower than the previous month. And that is why you saw a big decline in the headline figure. So to strip out all the Boeing stuff, absolutely spot on to do. I will just add to what Jeff was saying as well and say that the pending home sales as well up 8.1%. Now the biggest monthly gain since 2020. So that's very, very interesting that also Given the fact that homeowners and potential home buyers are, are struggling with higher mortgage rates, the fact that pending home sales had a big bounce back, that is more evidence. And that is why I'm going back to what I said to Jeff earlier on. It's about the dollar baby at the moment, which I think is overriding perhaps benefits that people might see for uh, Britain domestically uh, on the back of uh, a re uh, an improved deal with the European Union. But why I've started off here, having just spoken about the US markets, is because I want to make a point. And yeah, not like me to make a point, is it? But, but here we go. Look, look at these European market performance. Uh, the London market up 2.1%. French blue chips are up 3%. Milan blue chips are up 3.2%. Now, I know that this is in local currency, okay? That is my big caveat. But look, big, big inclines for the European markets month to date. We've got one day left. Have a look at that compared with the US, okay? So they're up three, 2 to 3%. Look at that. In local currency terms, there is an outperformance, for instance, of the French market of 6.5% in the month of February. An outperformance compared with the NASDAQ as well. So US markets absolutely taking on board, and let's go back to what Jeff said, taking on board the fact that we are going to have higher rates for longer if you strip out 
um, the, 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 the headline figure. You can look at the core data, whether it's the PCE figures we've been looking at, whether it's the US employment rate, whether it's growth rates more generally, whether it's pending home sales yesterday, whether it's durable goods new orders that Jeff broke into there. And that is why the US markets are having to learn to live in this brave new world where actually the market so far has got it wrong. The Fed so far is actually um, not moving to the will of the market. The market is having to move to the will of the Fed. That's how it is at the moment. Let's have a look at energy. Energy got an absolute splatting in the month as well. And again, this has got so many components to it, but safe to say, guess what, oil producers? We haven't had the squeeze. Guess what, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, and all of you other balls out there? We're not at $110 a barrel. And, and actually, the Russians are having to cut production to shore it up. So what's going on there? Oh, it's a longer term story. Oh, it's about refined product. Uh, yeah, but I'm getting my oil cheaper than I have done for months. I'm getting my heating oil cheaper. People are getting their refined product cheaper as well. So something's wrong in your analysis out there at the moment. But it's just delayed, yeah? You're right eventually. A bit like the transitory camp on the economics. Let's move on to technology as well. Again, quite a tough month as well, but a, a, a nuanced month as well. Apple made a bit of a comeback up 2.5%. Tesla. That's not a bit of a comeback. That is a mega comeback. No matter whatever you think about its competitive position, its valuation compared with others, that is a huge comeback um, compared to where it was. Amazon consumer discretion was still under a lot of pressure as a sector as well. In fact, it was indeed uh, up 1.2%, but down quite aggressively before that. Amazon lost 9% in the month as well. I'm going to stop there because we've got a great guest waiting in the wings. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay with us. Adeco CEO Corin Williams will be up after the company posts a mixed set of further quarter, uh, sorry, fourth quarter results. Um, don't miss the exclusive interview after the break. Well, exclusive interview. Plus, did you hear that it is the top level podcast? Is it one of the best ones we've ever done? That, that apparently is the word on the street. Yeah, and you can get it everywhere. You get it absolutely everywhere as well. So yeah, fantastic podcast. Apparently not to be missed this time around. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. Adeco Group has missed fourth quarter earnings forecasts with a 65% drop in reported net profit. The Swiss staffing firm said hiring volumes had been weak at the start of this year. Let's get straight to Coram Williams, the CFO of Adeco Group. Coram, good morning. Nice to see you this morning. Just talk us through the quarter. So um, from our perspective, the quarter was a good one. We're very proud of what we've achieved. Our Q4 top line came in at 5%. It's actually sector leading. It's well ahead of the market. Our gross margin was 21%, which is also sector leading. And our EBITA at 3.7% was robust. If I look at what the businesses have done, ADECO has been benefiting from its investment plan. We announced that earlier in the year, and we've really taken share from the competition. In LHH, We've seen really good growth in career transition. We've seen our digital coaching business up 40%. And Acodis, which, as you remember, is the integration of ACA and Modis, is working really well. We've over-delivered on the synergies. Now, you mentioned the forecasts. We've actually hit 
or beaten consensus all the way through top line, gross margin and EBITA. So we feel good about where we've landed in the quarter. One of the things that will stand out, I guess, for everybody who's trying to figure out what happens with the macro economy in the Western world is is what's happening with the labour market. And you're obviously very close to this story. And you've talked about some indication of a, a slowdown in hiring. Could you could you put a bit more colour onto that for us? What are you seeing in terms of um, specialists in, in niche industries, uh, software engineers, the, the kind of people that we know are difficult to get hold of and demand a, uh, a wage premium? Well, I, I think you mentioned earlier in the programme that the signals are contradictory. And I, I think that is a good way of putting it. If I look at the talent market, it is really dynamic. So we have parts of the market which are slowing, professional recruitment, for example. Some of those specialists that you mentioned, demand is falling, but it's still above 2019 levels. If I look at career transition, which is typically tied to job cuts, it's growing, but only really in the US and only really in the tech sector. And if we look at the core of the business, the flexible labor business, actually demand is pretty robust. And then when you look at it by geography, it's it really varies. So we have some geographies like Asia Pacific or Latin America, even certain parts of Europe, which are up double digits in Q4. And we have other parts that are slower. So it, it's not consistent. And I think that mismatch between labor supply and labor demand is something that continues to characterize the market. And it means there's healthy demand for what we do and what we provide to our clients. Coram, very good morning to you, sir. Why are the shareholders, I've actually, no, let me change the question. What are the shareholders saying to you about what they want from you in order to get the shares back to former glories? Uh, Virtually a year ago, you were trading at 44 euros. You're now trading significantly below that as well. You're having to offer a 7.3% divvy as well, which looks salivating in terms of yield as well. Why are shareholders quite disappointing in demanding such a high yield from you in terms of valuation? Well, so I think the dividend is a is a key part of the equity story, and I'm glad I'm glad you're salivating at the prospect of the yield because it is a strong yield. And as you know, we underpin the dividends, so we promise that we will pay it through a recession, and we did during the COVID crisis. I think if I step back and I look, you know, at where we are, last year we were behind in terms of top line growth. We were not growing as fast as the competition. We've implemented an investment plan. And the reason we're so pleased with Q4 is because we've actually closed the gap on the competition and we've, and we've overtaken them in Q4. We've taken share. I think the plan going forwards in 23 is to continue to build on that and to drive profitability and operating leverage and really get the business motoring. And that's what the simplify, execute and grow strategy is all about. It's about sharpening our focus making sure we continue those market share gains and that we turn that into good profit and good cash. 
Yeah, but I didn't even go to COVID, Corum. You mentioned that. If I go to COVID, you're actually half the price you were at the peak of COVID. There's the problem. And when I say about the dividend yield, I, I say it's salivating because it's 7.3%. But actually, if the company was firing all, on all cylinders, I doubt it would be quite so high. So that is, I agree, something that shareholders might like. But again, I, I'm sure if they thought the company was executing well enough, you wouldn't have such a high dividend yield at the moment. Historically, as you know, as well as I do, 7.3% means a company has a degree of distress. I think we're clear that execution is the focus going forwards. That's what we've got to do. And it's why Q4 is so important, because you've seen us close the gap and, and pull out a significant gap on the top line with our competition, as we need to keep delivering that, turn it into profitability, further integrate ACA and MODIS. And I think what we'll find is that our shareholders are pleased with that progress. But it's a journey and we've got more to do. We're very clear on that. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.